0: Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, November 22nd, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. And now, Pastor John Gentry. Welcome to our uh, worship series, uh, our our worship this morning as we uh, explore this concept of Jesus the shepherd king. The analogy of shepherding to depict the way that God relates to his people, gets used regularly in the Bible. It says something about the power dynamic of the relationship, since sheep are uh, rather dependent on their shepherd, and it conveys the importance of trust in that relationship, since sheep must trust the shepherd has their best interest in mind. We are God's sheep. Be encouraged because God takes care of his sheep. There may be a few people listening who have experienced raising sheep. I can think of one particular sheep that became a global phenomenon at the end of the 20th century. Even if, you've never, uh, even if you know nothing ne- uh, about sheep like me, chances are you've heard of Dolly, the first mammal that scientists cloned using an adult somatic cell. Uh, What I find amusing is that 6LL3, a.k.a. Dolly, is named after country music singer Dolly Parton because the sheep was cloned from a cell taken from a mammary gland. That's real, I promise. I did not make that up. The world-famous sheep is now on display at the National Museum of Scotland. But in the late 1990s, Dolly caught the entire world's attention. First and foremost, Dolly represented... A scientific breakthrough. A team of researchers uh, and medical professionals at the Roslin Institute in Edinburgh made history by turning theory into reality. Robin Lovell-Badge from the Francis Crick Institute observed: "Dolly was the first example of taking an adult cell and getting an adult. That meant that you could reprogram an adult cell nucleus back to the embryonic stage." But that wasn't the only reason why the name Dolly was catapulted into global conversation. There was, an, uh, there was concerns about violating the natural order of things. Father Kevin Wilds of Georgetown University asked rhetorically in an interview, are we acting more like the creator than creatures? Are we trying to play the role of God? Even though the scientific community was thrilled, anxieties began to build in the public consciousness as they speculated about future research and wondered if perhaps we had gone too far. Would scientists begin cloning humans next? Was cloning Dolly even ethical? As the last 20-something years have unfolded, some of those fears have been dispelled. We are in fact not mass manufacturing genetically engineered humans, even though we are in the process of learning to grow tissue and organs in the lab. And we're still making humans the good old-fashioned way. Another thing that has not changed is our curiosity about the limits and purpose of our power. We've never stopped thinking about what lines are meant for crossing, like finish lines, and what lines are best for marking boundaries, like fence lines. The new cloning frontier, along with emerging developments in stem cell research at the time, gave way to reflections that... We continue to contemplate today about the power that we wield in our human experience, uh, in our human endeavors, and about the responsibilities that come with being in a position of power. The hymn that we sang earlier, entitled, When the Poor Ones, invites us to encounter a God whose power surfaces in the most unusual of ways. In most cases, God does not show us His power by flexing His muscles and deepening His voice. Instead, God seems to hide His power in acts of quiet courage. Listen to the words of verse one: When the poor ones who have nothing to share, oh, when the poor ones who have nothing share with strangers; when the thirsty, water given to us all; when the crippled and their weakness strengthen others. Then we know that God still goes the road with us. This kind of display of power challenges the preconceptions that some of us entertain when we think of power as authority or influence or brute force. With God's power, the poor are the ones who have something to share, the thirsty are the ones who have water to give, and the crippled are the ones who can strengthen the weak. Our testimony as the people of God is that the power to love and to serve comes from God. As we will see in today's scripture, God comes to us with the gentle strength of a shepherd who watches over the flock and leads them with great care. It may not be glamorous or dignified being compared to sheep, but it is good to be the figurative sheep in God's pasture. This factoid will probably not surprise you that sheep eat for an average of seven hours a day, which I think is the plan for most people on Thursday. As you know, this is Thanksgiving week. It is, right, Pastor Jim? It is. Okay, yeah. I, I figured I would just double check, uh, since you can assume nothing in 2020, with uh, quote-unquote normal life completely thrown out the window, many of us have just decided to take it one day at a time, and treat our plans like a 10-day forecast. We can put things on the calendar, but there's a strong possibility that conditions may change. Uh, For some of us, Thanksgiving will look different. Normally, Cordy, uh, my wife and I, uh, we would be driving down to Orange County on Thursday for a potluck feast with about 50 or so of Cordy's family members, her siblings, mother, grandmother, cousins, aunts, uncles, Friends of family, friends of friends of family, and some people who just saw a party and wandered in. Clearly, it won't be doing that this year. I've spoken with a number of people who will be sharing this Thanksgiving table through a computer screen for a virtual Thanksgiving. Uh, believe it or not, I attended my first virtual uh, wedding this year. So there truly is a first for everything, Right. They had planned their wedding for the fall, this fall, and when a physical gathering started to look unlikely, they took it to Zoom. If that isn't the story of 2020, I don't know what is. We have to learn to adapt, right? The uh, trouble with an extended period of change and adaptation is that it can leave you with a feeling of powerlessness. And most of us like to have some sense of control of what's going on, so that when that gets taken away, it can be scary or or stressful or exhausting or all of the above. To some small degree, we may be able to relate to how the Israelites would have felt in the midst of their exile, about which we read in today's scripture. The ancient empire of Babylon had carted off a huge portion of Israelites along with the prophet Ezekiel and taken them away from their hometown of Jerusalem to the foreign lands of Babylon. They had been exiled for about five years when Ezekiel started writing. Their lives had been uprooted. They were living as refugees, and I'm sure they felt homesick. Their autonomy had been stripped, and so they had no real control of their circumstances. The people in power who were calling the shots did not place much value on their condition. For this reason, we hear God's proclamation in verses 17 through 19. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? When you drink of clear water, must you foul the rest with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have fouled with your feet? Why is it that some animals have had, have the best access for food and water, while others have to settle for what's left over in this analogy? And why is it that those with the best access not only take what they need, but ruin what remains? This should have been the shepherd's job, to keep watch. In his biblical commentary, Joseph Bleckensop writes, by the time of Ezekiel, shepherding was a well-established metaphor for governing. And since God was routinely represented in the ancient Near East as absolute monarchs, one. That could easily be transferred to deity. It is unclear in chapter 34 if the nobility of Israel is being criticized for their enormous failures to lead as God intended them, or if the blame is being placed on the leadership of Babylon for their abuse of power. Perhaps both, I wonder. What it is clear is that the great, uh, that grave lapses in judgment have been made and people have suffered. Bob Dylan writes a song called Ring Them Bells that mourns the suffering of the weak and awaits the time when it will end. I learned of the song from a cover by Sarah Gerosa uh, who has a beautiful version of it. Uh, One of the stanzas in in Dylan's song relates to the theme of this sermon. It goes, "'Ring them bells, sweet Martha, for the poor man sung. Ring them bells so the world will know that our God is one. For the shepherd is asleep where the willows weep, and the mountains are filled with lost sheep. Indeed, for Ezekiel, there are many sheep, many lost sheep in Babylon who are far from home.' And they got there because of the misdeeds of certain shepherds. Biblical scholar Margaret S. O'Dell writes this, Ezekiel asserts that the cause of the shepherds' failure is their determination to dominate with violence and harshness, not to lead with care and concern. The quest for power drives the shepherds to destroy what has been entrusted to them. I think of the classic Tolkien series, Lord of the Rings, in which war and oppression result from a greedy thirst to rule over others. No wizard or elf lord or mighty dwarf or king among humans is able to resist the temptations of the one ring that is the key to defeating the Dark Lord Sauron. Instead, it takes a pair of unknown unimposing hobbits from backcountry region to bear the great burden of the ring and destroy it in the volcanic fires of Mount Doom. Just as the rulers of Middle Earth are easily swayed by the promise of power, a similar picture is painted uh, in Ezekiel of the governing authorities who do a poor job of acting as the shepherds of the people. But in this chapter, we also receive some very good news. God tells Ezekiel that there is still hope because he will do what the governing shepherds could not. In verses 15 and 16, we hear the divine pronouncement. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice." The good news is that when we find ourselves tangled up in the messes that we've made for ourselves, there is a good shepherd who is ready to pull us out of the thorny bushes where we have become stuck and restore the balance of power that has been rigged against the weak. Verse 23 is important since it alludes to an appointed ruler whom God will set over his kingdom to shepherd and judge. God declares, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Given that the book of Ezekiel was written roughly 400 years after King David, this declaration from God refers to a king like David. For those following the liturgical calendar, today is Christ the King Sunday. It serves as an end cap to our Christian liturgical year. On this Sunday, we celebrate the reign of Jesus over all creation. And you may say, well, that sounds quite regal. And it is, since we worship Jesus as Lord. But what kind of king is this Jesus whom 1 Timothy 6.15 calls the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? One answer to that question is given to us in today's scripture reading. The king that God has appointed is a servant and shepherd. Like the young shepherd boy who has become king of, over Israel, Jesus is the shepherd king who looks after the needs of, of the people as a shepherd tends to his flock. Some, king never leave, some kings, they never leave the safety and comfort of their royal estate. But Jesus takes up his shepherd's staff for the sake of the sheep. Some of us will think of a green meadow filled with grazing sheep and their shepherd standing by peacefully. But Bleckensop reminds us the job was not always so picturesque. He writes, The shepherd's job is no doubt... Uh, The shepherd's job, no doubt, had periods of boredom and relative inactivity, but it could also be dangerous. There were thieves to contend with and beasts of prey, including the lion, generally with the help of nothing more than a stick or or similar primitive weapons and maybe a dog. The shepherd had to give an exact reckoning for the animals, that had been confided to him, and either pay for any of them that went missing or produce a part of a carcass if one had been killed. Shepherding, then, involves protecting the sheep who are powerless at the hands of predators and bandits. It may even mean protecting the sheep from themselves when they wander off too far from the flock and become lost or injured These are the tasks that Jesus assumes as his royal responsibility, along with the risks that come with it. Jesus once told his disciples, no one is greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. He knew that as God's appointed shepherd king, he would give his life for the sheep that had been entrusted to him. In doing so, Jesus has shown us, what kind of king that he is, and in the power of his resurrection, he has proven that there is no foe of evil or darkness that threatens the shepherd king or his sheep. For me, one of the most heartening implications is that we do not have to feel powerful to be empowered. Even though it is a commonplace instinct to desperately cling to the things that help us feel in control. The words of the prophet Ezekiel give us the courage to put our trust in God's shepherd king who holds back nothing to keep us safe. Especially during a time like this, it's easy to feel a bit unraveled. And uh, when our guard is up and our sense of security is weakened, we'll do almost anything to recover just a little bit of power. Think about the little power grabs that happen from day to day. We sometimes yell at the people that we love so we don't so we don't have to feel power, powerless. We can disguise put-downs in the form of jokes hoping sometimes it will make us feel better about ourselves. We will apply guilt trips or peer pressure to get what we feel that we need. We can even let something as seemingly innocuous as competitions get the better of us from better of us from time to time. Why do we do these things? Most of the time, it's because we have caved to the lie that we have been abandoned with no one to look after us but ourselves. The good news is that we are not alone. Our good shepherd is always close at hand and is ready to empower us to love and to trust. If you want to experience God's power in your life, you might find it you might be surprised to discover that God delights in meeting us at the very place where we feel we have nothing. For many of us, this seems counterintuitive, since weak things do not usually produce powerful results. But in the inverted world of the kingdom of God, things work a bit differently. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul hangs on God's words to him. My grace is sufficient for you for power is made perfect in weakness. And then continues in reflection, well I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. It's not that God wants us to live in an impoverished state, whether of body or soul, far from it. The point here is that even when we are at our lowest God is still able to lift us up. And part of that is learning To uh, is learning to trust God, just as sheep trust the shepherd. Verses thirteen and fourteen of Ezekiel thirty-four give us a picture of God's good plan for His people. I will bring them out from the I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them up from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. By the watercourses and all the inhabited parts of the land, I will feed them with good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing lands, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. For the Israelite refugees in Babylon, this is hope for a day of returning to the homeland and stepping out of their shadow of captivity. For us today, one thing that it means is that God has not and will not abandon us, especially those who are bleeding for rescue and for justice. We can trust that God will leave us, will not leave us to our own devices. A trust that happens when we loosen our grip a little and open our hands to God. I just recently started taking tennis lessons again and I'm revisiting my technique, including my grips. I grew up playing tennis and even played in high school, but you can pick up bad habits over the years, can't you? In my uh, first lesson, my tennis coach noticed that I was gripping the handle of my racket too tightly. It's not uncommon for players to hold their rackets with a death grip, but he told me that you significantly lessen your power when you do that. It makes it difficult for your wrists to be flexible, and on top of that, the constant uh, contraction of your forearm muscles will fatigue your arm strength and can even lead to injury. Instead, my tennis coach recommended holding the racket more gently, loosen my grip just a bit, and letting my swing and my hips drive the ball. There's an analogy there that I would like to... um, close this message with. When challenges come hurtling over the net of life at you, will you tighten your grip seize control of the situation with the sheer force of your will? Or will you relax your grip and allow God to guide you through the motions? I think we will find that as individuals and as the church that we are much better off learning to trust God with the arc of our lives. Ezekiel teaches us God is the true shepherd, so let us walk with him and listen for his voice. Amen? Amen.